Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the Rhode Island History Podcast and thanks for being back. I took a little bit of a break. Uh, I kind of came out of the gate swinging with this podcast and released a bunch of episodes all at once. So I needed a little break and I had some time to sort of regroup and recruit some more guests for I guess what we can call a second season, even though what was before this isn't really quite a season. In any case... I wanted to point out, because it's relevant for my guest today, that, you know, historians face as much doubt over what they do as people give to medical doctors, for example. I think that there's a general misunderstanding amongst the public of what a historian does, who a historian is. Uh, And part of that is because a lot of what historians do uh, exists in archives and in libraries and is a deeply personal endeavor um, from the handling of documents, the interpretation of documents, uh, and not just paper documents, as you'll hear with my guest today, but even uh, things that you wouldn't even expect to be historical documents that can help reconstruct a version of the past. Uh, You know, I'm sure if you've ever been uh, in a history class or if you've ever taught a history class, somebody always brings up Uh, The simplification of history on Wikipedia, which is absolutely true. That's not to say that Wikipedia isn't useful, but it is to say that it is a simplified version of what we do that, you know, contributes, I think, to this miscommunication between what it is we do uh, and what history actually is uh, and and what non-historians take from it. So I think my guest for today, Keith Stokes, Uh, is somebody who has been researching the history of Africans in Newport, particularly people who were brought here uh, forcefully. Uh, And as you'll see, Keith has worked with so many different documents on this uh, project. He's also uh, deeply, deeply a part of this history. He traces his roots back, I believe he says, nine generations of Newport residency. Um, He has gone back to what is today Ghana uh, and sort of rediscovered the past of his ancestors and also worked with documents there to try to understand what it was like for Africans uh, who came to Newport and were ultimately um, slaves for certain people. And it does kind of strike us weird as Rhode Islanders because I know from my perspective, um, as everybody here listening, I hope knows, I'm a Soviet historian. I don't really uh, get too deep into a lot of American history. But when I did as an undergraduate or even in high school, I think that the the history of the Civil War kind of clouds the fact that slavery definitely existed in the North for a while, uh, and particularly in New England as well. And we don't tend to think of that all too frequently, which is a little bit unfair. But I know that there are historians like Keith Stokes and like others who I hope to have on this podcast in the coming weeks who are not only challenging that misconception, but writing engaging histories, uh, giving uh, engaging lectures, all of that stuff. So without further ado, here is Keith Stokes on the American irony, as he calls it. Great. Uh, my name is Keith Stokes, and I'm with the 1696 Heritage Group here in Newport, Rhode Island. 
and it's an organization that provides historical research, interpretation, and programming on behalf of what we now call today uh, the Black, Indigenous uh, people of color. Uh, our work has taken us across the African diaspora, across the United States, the West Indies, to Africa. And we've been very excited over these last few years to be able to bring a level of documentation and interpretation to a largely unknown history of the early settlement of not only America, but the Americas. And most importantly, uh, bring a firsthand perspective and interpretation of the lives of African heritage and other people of color who were equally involved in the building and supporting of America, past, present, and future. Great, thanks for joining me. Um, so I had the pleasure of viewing one of your lectures. It's a lecture that you did for Yale, um, I think appropriately titled American Irony. And so I was hoping that we could discuss that topic. So really broadly, um, how did you get into this topic and, and what is this American irony that you've been engaging with? Well, again, I, I sit on a number of local, national, international uh, heritage boards with a particular focus on African heritage and history. Um, and a large part of that history is clearly how we as African heritage people arrived in the Americas through the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, living and working here in Newport, Rhode Island would surprise people. Uh, for those who know Newport, they may know us through our international tourism and hospitality, our Gilded Age mansions, our international sailing events and jazz festivals. But Newport during the colonial era was actually the most active and largest slave trading port in all of British North America. Not Charleston, South Carolina, not Richmond, Virginia, not New York, not Philadelphia or Boston, but Newport, Rhode Island. And one of the things that I'm most proud of, even though that's a hard history, a troubled history, is that we have a significant amount of primary and secondary documentation uh, that begins to not only tell the story of the transatlantic slave trade, but it helps us to begin to begin to reinterpret the story of the Africans themselves, uh, who they were, where they arrived from from the African continent, and most importantly, how they were able to survive and thrive despite arriving in the worst circumstance as enslaved chattel property. So this is something that I've been very engaged with. It's a part of my own heritage and history. My own ancestor um, were taken away from, at the time, the Gold Coast, which is today Ghana, uh, and then sent through the Middle Passage to Jamaica, and then eventually to Rhode Island. Um, and we own heirlooms that go back to the 18th century. So this is a story that's always been a part of my family heritage and history. My own adult children are ninth generation Newporters. So we love our community, we love our state, and we love our country, but we also love the fact that not everyone who were the early founders of America looked like or worshiped like George and Martha Washington. They looked more like my ancestors and worshiped like more like my ancestors. So I've always had this obligation to tell the entire story of the building of America and all the people who participated in that. And again, Newport was very much the center of that story. Several years ago, as an advisor for the National Trust, um, I was asked to particularly talk about one of the curious circumstances of Newport being this significant transatlantic slave trading center during the colonial era, but also Newport and Rhode Island generally known as one of the early English colonies to be able to be established under the tenets of what we call today religious freedom. And in fact, the early European settlers and colonizers of Rhode Island led by Roger Williams when Rhode Island was established, they were able to draft and receive from King Charles II court in 1663 a royal charter, which is unique in its perspective because the charter 
actually prescribes and allows for any Protestant Christian citizen of that time free enjoyment of their civil liberties and rights. So Rhode Island becomes one of the earliest colonies that begins the process of separating a church and state, does not require that its citizens and subjects worship under a single church based upon a king or a queen or a royal governor. And this, what we call a lively experiment, would during the 17th into the early 18th century, Rhode Island would become a mecca of attracting significantly oppressed religious minorities. Uh, the Baptist faith, as we know today, was established by Roger Williams at Providence and here in Rhode Island. Um, soon after, Quakers would establish themselves. In fact, during the 17th century, Rhode Island, particularly Newport, had the largest Quaker community in British North America. This is well before Philadelphia and Pennsylvania establishes a Quaker community. Early Jews arrived, Sephardic Jews who are escaping the inquisitions of Spain and Portugal. They land in the West Indies and South America. And then by 1658, they're establishing themselves in Newport. So Newport and Rhode Island, which we're all quite proud of, is one of these early settlements that really puts forth and advances the notion of religious freedom and civil liberties. Almost simultaneously, as they are establishing themselves here and worshiping freely, or at least without any threat of governor or king or queen interference, they are also engaging in commerce. And the commerce of choice that they're engaging in soon becomes the transatlantic slave trade. So Newport, like many early colonial communities, some of the earliest slave traders and participants are the leading members of the religious denominations that are dominating Newport. Quakers, Baptists, Anglicans, um, even Jewish merchants are early participating in both the slave trade and also the slave ownership. So this, this story of American irony is that, that irony that on one hand, um, you have men and women and families who are seeking free religious expression and receiving it in this colony of Rhode Island, this town in Newport, and then almost simultaneously are enslaving Africans for the sole purpose of using their labor to build their wealth and their opportunities. And it's all happening uh, almost simultaneously at the same time, shared spaces during this period, what we call our golden age in Newport, between about 1705 to 1800, about a 75 year period. Yeah, that certainly is ironic, uh, the sort of the uh, contradiction between the two things. But I'm curious of why it is that Newport in particular, of all of the harbors in New England, including Boston, New Bedford, etc., why is it Newport in particular that becomes the sort of center of New England's engagement in the triangle trade? Well, it, I think the most important reason, and again, Newport is the most active slave trading port in British North America. Um, Newport and Rhode Island between a, say, 1705-1805, 100-year period, our golden age, we have at least 934 documented slave voyages, close to 1,000. Um, nearly all those voyages during that period of time are led by Newport merchants. Uh, it is Newport, it's Providence and Bristol, but 72% are Newport alone. So before the American Revolution, it's Newport dominating the trade. After the American Revolution, it's Providence, Rhode Island, and Bristol, Rhode Island. But what really drives this trade um, is the rum trade. And in fact, one of the things that Rhode Island merchants perfect, they're actually called rum men, is the fact that Rhode Island today, like much of New England, has 
land that is not very uh, hospitable uh, to cash crops and agricultural-based economy. The weather is challenging. So for the most part, when you think of the advent of the settlement of the Western Hemisphere during those exploration settlement years from 1500 to 1800, most of the agricultural-based economies that are really uh, driving the wealth and the trade uh, at that time between certainly the Western Hemisphere, across the Western Hemisphere, is really driven by the cash crops. Uh, crops and cash that we tend to see synonymously as the sugar trade or sugar cane, certainly coffee, tobacco, rice. Uh, those types of products are not going to be grown in New England soil, Rhode Island soil. Rhode Island soil is largely sand and shale. So Rhode Island, as a commerce, needed to find new markets or more sustainable markets that were more applicable to our geographic location and our capacity to exploit. So it, it really becomes rum that begins to drive um, not only the Rhode Island economy, but large part of the New England economy. And, and we know this because by the mid 17th century, Rhode Island merchants and settlers are already now exploring and trading and initially Barbados and then later in Jamaica and elsewhere, but it's really Barbados and it's several Newport merchants who are now discovering that this uh, sugar cane can be grounded and boiled and to distilled eventually into rum. So by the mid 17th century, you're having literally uh, molasses um, being transported to Newport and it is now being boiled and distilled into rum. And over the next 100 years, Rhode Island becomes the leading producer of rum in British North America. In fact, if we go back and look at the primary records, if I could take you back to 1765 Newport, there were 24 rum distilleries within the town itself, another half dozen in Providence and Bristol. Um, and that rum, that that is not sold back into the American and European markets is used as the primary trading product for Africans along the West African coast, because Africans, are acquired in West Africa, almost exclusively transferred and transported to West Indies, and they become the labor force to harvest the sugarcane fields. So African labor becomes the driving force in the West Indies to produce the molasses and other aftermarket products from the sugarcane. And then those molasses are being transported by New Newport, largely Newport ships to Newport, and then distilled into rum. And then that rum is then used to be sold to purchase more enslaved Africans along the West African coast. And thus you have a triangular trade, a trade between, or a rum trade, a trade between Newport, um, the Gold Coast, which is today Ghana, and then from Ghana to the West Indies. And again, being an English uh, colony, we're trading and doing business safely and securely uh, with other English settlements. So in the West Indies case, it's Barbados, it's Bahamas, it's certainly Jamaica, on the West African coast, it's clearly what is today Ghana. In fact, I've had the opportunity to visit um, and actually tour and interpret documents from some of the slave fortresses along the Ghanaian coast, um, the Cape Coast, Elmina, and most importantly, Fort William at Ananabo, where most of the Rhode Island merchants would land. My own ancestors came from Ananabo, then on to Jamaica. So, so once we understand this trade and this participation in the trade, we have a better understanding of Rhode Island and Newport's participation in it. Uh, in fact, it's important to recognize that Rhode Island was so dominant in this rum-related transatlantic trade, 
nearly all of the leading families would accumulate wealth and become the leading families and leading contributors of early Rhode Island New England are directly tied in merchants in this trade. And, and I want to be clear, um, all religious denominations participated. Quakers participated, Jews participated, Anglicans, Baptists, Congregationalists all participated. In fact, there's a Quaker woman in Newport that once said, um, unfortunately, uh, it's the custom that keeps men blinded, the custom of trade and the custom of wealth that blinds these men to participate in this horrific trade of, of human beings for the purposes of economic prosperity. That's sort of where I was going to go next, because all of the talk about these commodities like rum and sugar and molasses, and then you're, you, you add enslaved peoples in there, it really, it paints the picture that we've heard so many times, the history of the slave trade as it existed and the horrors that accompanied it. But one thing that was really, that I really valued about your presentation was that you're trying to sort of break that shell to get down to a deeper sort of lived experience of, of how these Africans when brought to Rhode Island then uh, lived and had to sort of uh, adopt and adapt their, their previous lifestyles to this new world and that they lived these uh, individual autonomous to an extent lives that are histories within, of, within and of themselves rather than just this broader you know, history of the slave trade. And so let's get down to, to that because uh, considering, and we'll, we'll talk about your, your research trip to Ghana and other types of documents that you've done, but you know, what was the, the work and the worship and the life for these Africans like uh, in colonial Newport? Well, you know, one of the interesting aspects of understanding the slave trade and slavery in colonial New England or Newport or Rhode Island versus the antebellum South or the West Indies is the fact that they are formed around very different, not better or worse, but different economic, social, and religious circumstances. I mean, the average person, um, unfortunately, they get much of their history through um, online or through um, commercial um, shows and medias and Hollywood. So they're not getting a really accurate proportal. They're getting a dramatization of what that might be. So when we begin to understand, as I said very earlier, the very founding of New England generally, but particularly Rhode Island at Newport, are men and women who were persecuted because of their religious beliefs. So they were hypersensitive to the importance of free religion and free worship, um, even though they themselves would, would delve immediately into the transatlantic slave trade and slave owning. So it creates this unique circumstance where, and I've been asked this by clergy on a consistent basis, you know, how could men and women and families of belief of the cloth own a fellow human being? Uh, how could Jews own a fellow human being? And, and one of the things that you have to understand in an 18th century belief system, because we, we really can't impose our 21st century values um, on, on past people and institutions, we, we need to just understand how they came to those and justify those conclusions. And one of the justifications that was consistently used to justify how these men and women of, of deeply religious beliefs um, would somehow justify their ownership of a fellow human being or participate in the trade of human beings is that you had this interesting circumstance where the merchant class, uh, they had a belief that an enslaved person that they held in bondage based upon biblical interpretation was that, that they did not own 
the person's soul. They only owned their work and that their soul could be salvaged by the very essence of giving these Africans the opportunity to be converted into the religion of their household master or mistress. So, so again, it's, it's, it's not here to justify that belief. It's a belief that was used and practically believed to justify this. So what you find is, is that for many deeply religious merchants, um, they not only participate in the trade, they own slaves in their household. And these enslaved African men, women, and children in their household, by the middle part of the 18th century, there is this significant movement to convert them into either Christian or Jewish religion. In fact, we have a number of Africans that are listed as Israelites. Um, in Quaker households, Africans take on Quaker religious identities, even their names, such as patients, they're wearing the black and brown garb. Um, we have some of the leading ministers in the Anglican and congregational churches uh, writing in their diaries in the 1740s and 50s in Newport, how they are converting thousands of Africans or Negroes, as we were called at that time, and baptizing them. And they are part of the uh, congregations. They are part of the places of worship. And again, um, this opportunity of conversion and of some level of not equal, but some level of access to worship in shared religious space would be an opportunity for the Africans to exploit later on. You, we also know that, again, colonial New England, and particularly Newport, as densely compacted early English settlements, do not have large, vast farmlands or plantation lands. And when we tend to think of slavery, we tend to think of the antebellum South, we think of the large plantation house up on the hill, and then you have the slave quarters far, uh, far away. There are very few circumstances in New England where there are separate slave quarters. We have them in Massachusetts and Connecticut, but for the most part, as Africans arrived, they lived, worked, and slept in the same household as master and mistress. And many times in what we as New Englanders call garrets or the attic, or in the pantry, which would later become their workspace that had separate egresses in and out of the, of the house. We also know that for the most part, since there wasn't a demand for large labor to work on cotton fields or sugarcane fields in New England, uh, we find that many of these Africans are brought in specifically to learn trade skills, to be able to provide the work necessary to operate and maintain a New England, and particularly a New England seaport economy. So by the very nature of trade skills, it's absolutely essential that you bring younger people who have the time to be trained and to learn and then be able to perfect their trade skills. My own ancestor, uh, was brought to America in 1795 and then trained as a Windsor chair maker and the later cabinet maker as an eight-year-old boy. And by the time he was free and a young man, he had skill sets and trade skills that were transferable that propelled him in the early 19th century into a level of wealth and prosperity and choice that other Africans would not have simply because of the fact they didn't have access. So I just want to be clear here that the unique economic, social, and religious circumstance of New England, and particularly Newport of the 18th century, would provide an access to education, an access to social relations, an access to religion and training for Africans who are still enslaved, which would have been unheard of and unnecessary if you were enslaved in a, again, a rice plantation in the Carolinas or a sugar plantation in Jamaica. So, it's absolutely essential to understand that this unique circumstance would allow Africans to have access to a level of choice, education, 
um, in their own decision-making earlier than most other Africans. And that is why the earliest African organizations, African schools, African churches, African benevolent societies are established largely here in New England into Philadelphia. In fact, by the 1780s, the first free African benevolent society in America is established at Newport. And they reach out to their counterparts in Boston, Philadelphia, and Providence. And by the end of the 1780s, all four communities have African benevolent societies. These societies all later would evolve into some of the earliest free African churches in other societies and schools. So once we understand this history, it gives us a better understanding of not only the slave institution, but it also gives us what I'm most excited about because it's a part of my own family history, an interpretation of how African heritage people survived slavery and thrived during and after slavery. This is a story that we call today creative survival. What were the things that African men, women, and families were able to do to continue to survive and thrive despite living during times of slavery and then the follow along discrimination that still exists to this very day? Yeah, I, I was really uh, impressed by the amount of organizations like the Free African Unity Society that, that is created as sort of an outgrowth of this particular relationship that you're describing of, of um, dynamics in Newport between uh, Africans and the people who they live with, whether it's, you know, slave owners or, or just people that inhabit the same area as they do. Um, it's super interesting. And then the, the point that you made about um, not imposing our 21st century view onto certain things, I feel like that is one of the harder um, messages of a historian to convey to the public, um, because there, especially as you were saying, with TV, with social media, with all these new forms of people accessing simple history, it's really easy and tempting, I think, for the average reader or the average viewer to try to understand these things um, as we would understand them today. Uh, and, I, and I think that, as you say, in the, in the case of Newport, it sort of really does spell out this complexity of relationships, um, of people who could simultaneously be sympathetic to the African cause in opposing slavery, um, but then also still have some of those remnants of um, active slaveholding within them, you know what I mean? So there, there were some people that you mentioned in your presentation that I think embody this irony that you're talking about. Um, so I was wondering if you could give any examples of, of some of the people that, you know, were contradictory, I guess, and for the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it, there are a number of prominent um, men, women, and families who were actively involved in advancing religious freedom, advancing um, by the time of the American Revolution, um, the freedom of and the establishment of our United States of America. Um, and again, their belief was is that um, we're not holding um, the soul that only God uh, owns and controls, but we're owning the work, and which they would extend in how they saw an indentured servant system or a feudal system of, of, of Europe that they brought with them to the new world. But as an example, uh, Joseph uh, Wanton, is our governor of Colonial Rhode Island. He's governor from 1769 up until the advent of the American Revolution. Uh, he's also a merchant and he's a Quaker. Um, 
And in fact, in 1750, he's writing to the Quaker community, <coughs> to the meeting and explaining that he's involved in the trade. He actually in detail talks about landing in Adenabo and how many Negroes he would acquire and purchase and transport. <coughs> and again, at the time of his death, uh, he still owned a slave. Um, we have other uh, leading merchants in the Jewish community, Aaron Lopez. Aaron Lopez is a Sephardic Jew whose families originated in Spain uh, and then left for Portugal. And then while in Portugal, they were forced under the Catholic crown um, to be able to hide uh, their Judaism and their, be their belief. Um, he would escape to Rhode Island with his family. And once he arrived, he dropped the pretense of being a Catholic and took on a Jewish name, a Jewish identity. Um, he went from Duarte Lopez to Aaron Lopez, along with his father, who became Moses, and his mother, Rachel, um, and then would become a leading advocate of not only building what is today the oldest existing synagogue in America, Turrell Synagogue, but also as his merchant trade, he would reconnect the Jewish diaspora across the Western Hemisphere. I mean, we have Aaron Lopez's ships landing everywhere there are Jewish settlements in the Western Hemisphere. They're landing in Curaçao, Suriname, Jamaica, Barbados. He's bringing prayer books. He's bringing information. But he's also actively involved with his father-in-law in the transatlantic slave trade. He owns six enslaved Africans in his own self. Um, at the time of his death, he willed those Africans to his uh, children. Um, so these ironies of men who were incredibly important historical leaders in advancing religious freedom for their own religion, for the larger society, were also um, actively engaged in benefiting and building their wealth along the ownership, and more importantly, uh, the active uh, transportation of Africans uh, in building this transatlantic economy. But on the other hand, there are also uh, men and women who stand apart. Uh, in fact, in Newport, possibly the first and earliest abolitionist is the Reverend Samuel Hopkins of the First Congregational Church. Samuel Hopkins is in one of a number of Yale Divinity School congregational ministers that land in Newport. And Samuel Hopkins becomes the first uh, active member of the clergy, member of the leading community of Newport at that time to challenge both the slave trade and slave ownership. In fact, uh, in 1776, he actually um, sends a treaty to the Continental Congress, uh, suggesting that we cannot achieve true liberty as a new nation unless all of our inhabitants are free, including the Negroes of that time. He also believes so fervent, fervently in not only to ending the slave trade and ending slave ownership, he feels that once Africans become baptized in members of, of churches and congregations, they have equal standing as citizens and as members of that congregation. Uh, in fact, the Free African Benevolent Society of Newport, which is established in 1780, is assisted by Samuel Hopkins. And later that society evolves into a church and under Samuel Hopkins Congregational Church, it takes on the Union Colored Congregational Church denomination. So we know that there are good people and bad people and everyone else in between in history, but it's important to recognize that you can't judge or interpret history as black or white. It's more shades of gray. It's shades of gray then, and it's shades of gray to this day as it always will be. It's our job to interpret the history as it unfolds, as it's documented, and then provide an interpretation of that documentation. I, I just wanna add another wrinkle in this because this is something that 
most people do not discuss or maybe understand. Uh, the level of complicity of this transatlantic slave trade also includes the Africans themselves. One of the reasons that the Rhode Island merchants landed and prospered in what is today Ghana is because the Rhode Island merchants were negotiating directly with the Fonti tribal leaders of coastal Ghana. In fact, the Fonti tribal leaders were engaged with Ashanti warriors to acquire enslaved Africans and march them to the coast, place them in slave fortresses so they could be sold or traded with arriving Rhode Island merchant ships. So I've had the physical experience to actually be in dungeons where enslaved African men, women, and children are kept before they are then brought to the beach and loaded on ships and then transported to the Middle Passage never to return and to actually engage and have a discussion of African jail keepers and of African intermediaries who benefit directly from this sale and this participation. So it's important to recognize that if we're talking about complicity of a transatlantic slave trade that lasted nearly three centuries and that transported at least 12 million African men, women, and children from old world to new world, we have to recognize that that complicity included nearly all religions, all races, or all ethnicities. It was probably the world's first equal opportunity employer. I also wanna point out that this issue of Africans participating in the trade becomes such a serious issue the African Benevolent Society in Newport sends a letter to fellow societies in Philadelphia, Providence, and Boston complaining about the fact that our own in Africa and here in America are participating in this trade and that we need to do everything in our power to stop this and to convey this message. So Africans were aware of fellow African capacity in this trade. Do you think that the you know, Africans in what is today Ghana may have been complicit to a level, but that they were unaware of the extremity that some of these people that they were sending away would, would find themselves in? It's a great question. I mean, I've, I've talked and worked with scholars. Um, um, I think the interpretation that I've, I've received most consistently is, is that at that time, um, it's tribalism and war. And unfortunately, Tribalism and war has existed since the dawn of man, and it cuts across every ethnicity, every nation, every religion. Uh, the difference is, is that, and this is what sets apart African enslavement, is that once these, these Africans were captured and their land were taken uh, and they were sold, uh, the general sense was it's not our issue, not our interest to find out what the disposition would be. But I can tell you in discussions today is no one was thinking of people being sold into slavery as a permanent condition or as an inheritable condition. Most thought that at some point you would win your freedom or your children would win freedom and you can return or have free choice. But it's really once the Africans land in the Western Hemisphere, and particularly in America, where by the end of the 17th century, and it really accelerates into the 18th and 19th century, where the decisions are made and it begins with the Virginia colony and other colonies where the decision is made that children born to slave mothers, their birth makes them an inheritable condition where they themselves are slaves for life. You very rarely see an inheritable slave system anywhere in the history of slavery. Slavery has term limits, either based on the reigns of kings or queens or a feudal system uh, or a work system but it was never an inheritable condition that was placed on a single group of people by race. 
And that's exactly what happened here in particularly the Americas, where you now have a system where uh, mothers of children are birthing not their own children for their own family and for their own love and protection, but for the needs and uses of their master and mistress. And it creates a whole production system that becomes unwieldy during the 19th century in the antebellum era in the American South and then the West Indies and South America. So it's important that we understand this and the complexity of it. Um, we may not agree with it today. We wouldn't um, certainly embrace it today, but we have to understand the decisions that were made at the time in the 17th and 18th and 19th century and the knowledge of the general population or the lack of knowledge or access uh, to make more informed or more humane uh, decisions. But, but I will tell you again, it's because it's a complicated history and story. For, for, many, for many who were slaveholders, they really believe that holding this African as a slave in America or in Virginia or in Rhode Island was better than to allow them to remain as pagans in what they call deep, dark uh, Africa, because they had no contact with Africa and anything that was given to them about Africa was skewed to justify the slave system. So without the internet or mass communication or mass transportation, anything that was said about Africa during that time was said for the very sole purpose of exploiting Africans and exploiting and maintaining the slave trade. And unfortunately, people bought into that because that was the access to information that they had. I'm not justifying, I'm not apologizing for the system. I'm just trying to understand how it would take place and how it would extend itself for so long it impacts so many men, women, and children. Right. There's a um, an interesting example that I read uh, in my early graduate studies. You ever read the book by Trevor Bernard called uh, "Mastery, Tyranny, and Desire"? No, it's, I haven't. It's a um, it's a Trevor Bernard takes the diary of a slave owner on a, a plantation in Barbados. And he tries to pick it apart because this person, his name is John Thistlewood, sort of meticulously every day wrote down what happened. Um, but the book starts off with this story of um, John Thistlewood's house slave. So sort of his main his main connection to his other the other people that he owned um, crying over his grave. Right. So. It's not John that's writing about this, obviously, because John is dead at this point. But somebody writes about uh, this this enslaved person crying over his former master's grave now. And so the question becomes, like, how do we in the 21st century understand the fact that somebody would be crying over their their master's grave? And I think that that image, it sort of it jogs our mind and imagination in the 21st century because you know, we think of the dialectic of master-slave and we think of it, as you said, as black and white, and that's strictly it. But there's all these complications that could have resulted in this person weeping over, over the, uh, the dead plantation owner or what have you. Um, I mean, taking apart that there has been significant embellishment uh, in justification of slave ownership and slave trade, um, you know, the, the beneficial master. Um, you do have a unique circumstance where, particularly in Barbados, where I've studied and lectured, where you had these very tightly knitted shared spaces. Mm -hmm. um, as enslaved Africans are arriving in 17th century Barbados, so are indentured Irish. 
um, and they are working and living side by side. Uh, there are many cases where there's an intermarriage, an interrelationship, as were Africans working side by side by the surviving indigenous people of New England. And then you see interrelational relationships. So, and it creates a new class of people, mulatto classes it called, uh, or people of color in such a mixed racial heritage class. Uh, but, but one of the things that, that I do find, which is interesting in a New England Newport circumstances, I said earlier, many of the Africans arrived with children. I mean, we have reams of documents and letters and, and work orders where uh, they're particularly ordering children, the children under the age of 12. Um, now I can even begin to think about how a child under 12 could survive the middle passage from Africa to the West Indies and eventually to Rhode Island, but they did. So once these children would arrive, uh, they're placed in households. And for the most part, they're not only living in the same household, they're sharing beds with, and they're sharing space. And so you have this paternalistic system uh, still enslaved, which is different than and allows for a level of cohabitation and interaction between enslaved and enslaver that you wouldn't see in a slave plantation um, in the American South or certainly in the West Indies. So it's, it's this cohabitation uh, or what I call interdependence. It's not integration, it's interdependence. And, and interdependence is a very important difference because um, the slave master, the slave society, is dependent upon the work, the skilled work, the trade, the companionship, the support of these African men, women, and children. So because of this interdependent relationship, it doesn't surprise me that you have personal relationships or a kinship relationship. But, but let me be clear, reading and interpreting primary sources of Africans at that time enslaved and free, their diaries, their letters, their probate records, they absolutely despise the slave system. They absolutely want to be free. And in Newport's case, they want to reclaim their African identity. In fact, you have Newport and Providence Africans traveling back to what is today uh, Sierra Leone, and then later traveling back to other African uh, locations for the express purpose of setting up settlements. And this is well before the American Colonization Society, which wanted to send us away. This is Africans who were free in the 18th century saying, we want to return. So, so it's a complex system. It's complex people as we are to this very day. And that's one of the reasons why I spend most of my time and most of my interest interpreting and researching the African perspective or the people of color perspective, because that's been the least researched, the least presented, or it's been presented from a white interpretation, either a white scholar or a white interpreter a white institution interpretation. I'm not saying that that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that there might be nuances that are missed. Absolutely. Even, even the, the, the book that I just mentioned, John Thistlewood is a white plantation owner. So clearly the day-to-day the -day doings of uh, his property or his slaves are from his perspective and not from, from their perspective. Um, but there's a good transition into a conversation about sources, which I try to have with all of the historians that that come on the podcast, because I think so many people, you know, for everybody that also reads simplified history and doesn't understand the full complexities of it. A lot of that is also reading and interpreting sources, uh, seeking out sources. 
you know, and people tend to think of these sources strictly as written documents, but as you said, sometimes it can be prison cells in Ghana or something like that. Um, so in the, in the process of your research, what are some of the sources that you engaged with that, that really, you know, in your mind revealed something different and new? I've, I've been fortunate because coming from an old family of color, um, I actually own um, original publications uh, from abolitionist tracks, um, underground railroad tracks, uh, autobiographies dating back to the 18th and, and 19th century uh, that my own ancestors were able to acquire and maintain and pass on. And I've always used those as a grounding as I start to reach out to other sources or other interpretations. Um, I've also been able to work with so many different historical institutions and have access to their sources, primary and secondary. So it's given me the ability to build a pretty extensive bibliography, which, which I've broken down to not only the slave trade and the transatlantic slave trade, but the African experience or the African heritage experience, um, very much including uh, the indigenous people. Because again, um, if you think in terms of the founding of the Americas, it's founded on indigenous people land and African people labor. And it's the land and the labor that drives the very founding and building of the Americas. And, and you can't understand that until you understand the people who own the land and the people who work the land. Um, so I, I've always been fortunate to be able to pull together very large bibliographies and, and share that because again, my viewpoint is based upon my experiences, my research experience, my study experience, my personal experience. So it's my viewpoint. So, so anytime I provide a lecture or a source, I, I love providing particularly students and young people bibliographies so they can go out and research and study and read and hopefully uh, come up with their own informed conclusions, but it to be an informed conclusion. Um, I'm also very cautious of, and, and again, the Thistlewood Barbados example, being very careful with old sources that still might be embellished. Just because it's um, an 1850 journal doesn't necessarily mean it's accurate. Mm -hmm. uh, it just happened to be written in 1850. Who wrote it? And for what purpose? And what time? And what were, here, what were their sources? So, so I, I always encourage young scholars to really think through the layers of research and discovery uh, before jumping to a conclusion. Um, and that's a challenge sometimes, because again, um, for me, sometimes hard history, emotional history, difficult history, it drives us to a very emotional position. Uh, and sometimes we have to be, uh, we have to take back on the emotion and, and begin to under, understand the history, how it unfolded. Um, my, my late grandmother in Newport, when I was a little boy, said something to me, which I carry forward. And, and this was us visiting the library and talking about, you know, slavery and who we were as a family. And she said, you know, as a paraphrase, you know, slavery is how we got here, but it tells you little to who we are as a people. And, and what she was trying to say is, is that, yes, any one of us that have African heritage, at some point, we're a part of the diaspora. We arrived here through the transatlantic slave trade. But that's one part of the story. You need to understand who we are despite arriving as chattel property. And, and that's kind of inspired me. Mm -hmm. And to have grandparents and great aunts and aunts and uncles and parents and friends and mentors who have said of color, who have basically said to me, uh, you know, it's really cool, keep to have your background. To be someone of African heritage, that's a really cool thing because uh, you're special and the people who are your ancestors were special and you stand on their shoulders to this very day. That's a very different way of growing up and being raised versus sitting in a classroom and saying, oh, you're black, you're part of slavery. 
Well, there's so much more to that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and you also mentioned that you you went to Ghana to to do some research too. What were what were some of the the engagements with there? I mean, because I I feel like you know I'm a I'm a historian of the Soviet Union myself, so you know even talking about some of those uh, digging beyond the surface level of sources definitely resonates with Soviet history too. But um, I feel like I haven't heard a lot or read a lot about uh, any of this history that really uh, is pulling from sources in Africa itself, if not European history. So one thing, for example, that uh, French historians have gotten really good at is looking at sources in French Algeria uh, and the former French colonies in Africa. Uh, British historians a little bit also, I think, too. But in American history, I haven't really encountered it all that much. So what was it like for you there? What were the kind of sources that you got while you were there? It was fascinating. I was invited in 2020 um, and right before uh, the COVID as a part of the international uh, celebration of the transatlantic slave trade. And it was a forum that was sponsored by the African Heritage and Cultural Society. So they had scholars, researchers all across the world uh, coming to Accra, the capital of Ghana, and spending a week uh, with lectures and programming and such and visits and tours. And, and the whole focus was, where do we go from here? You know, how do we take this heritage, this culture, and this history and begin to reconnect the diaspora? How do we reconnect African heritage people who might be in Barbados, the Bahamas, or Cleveland, or Newport, Rhode Island, uh, with Ghana, with Nigeria, and such? So in my case, they invited me to come to provide a lecture on the Newport um, role and participation. Uh, one, of the, one of many assets that we have that connect Newport to this history is Newport today has the oldest and largest existing African burying ground in America. Uh, it's called Godzilla Laker. My own ancestors are buried there. My own immediate family are buried there. And it dates back to the early 18th century. Many of the Africans who were buried there, enslaved and free, originated in what is today Ghana. In fact, they brought with them their religion, their customs, their day naming customs that are all a part of the markers and the stories at that burying ground. So, so I was asked to come and present that particular history. Uh, they also had a surprise for me because they brought me to Ananabo and to Fort William where my ancestors were enslaved. And I was able to participate in meeting with the local chief and the local town and the community and they gave me an opportunity to take a tour through the slave fortress, a colonial fortress. And I was able to walk through dungeons and chambers that my own ancestor would have been in 250 years before. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that was just striking to me is I actually brought some soil from our burying ground and we buried the soil in a ceremony um, in the dungeon as a way of returning the souls of those who we thought were lost uh, but have been reclaimed in Newport and buried in Newport. And then they did something that was really striking for me because if you've ever had the chance to go or to watch online the stories of these slave fortresses across the West African coast, each and every one of them have this large timber door that separates the interior of the fortress and the outside beach. And when you open that door, you had enslaved African men, women, and children, they're shackled together, they're marched through that door onto the beach, and then they're placed on ships never to return. So these doors now symbolically are called doors of no return. So in my case, everyone brought me up to the door and they asked me to push it open. It took me a while to get this thing open. 
And when I pushed it open and walked onto the beach, everyone applauded and said, Keith, since you've returned to Ghana and you've returned to Ananabo, it is now the door of return. And then we all had a beer and we celebrated and I walked through the village and we had a great time. We had a great party. And no one was talking about slavery. No one was talking about the transatlantic slave trade. Everyone was talking about how do we share this story? Keith, how do we get more people from America to come and have this experience? How can we get more people to come back home and enjoy this experience and share this culture of a people who have never been lost, but are people who are now been found? And it's through history, through research and interpretation that gives us an ability to reconnect these people. So Again, um, I'm following in the footsteps of my, my mentors and my grandmother. Uh, the story is not how I got here. <laughs> the story is, is who my people are. Uh, and I just really greatly enjoy I, I I always say a funny story. I've spent so much time in the West Indies and Barbados, Jamaica, Curacao, you name it. I've been there. Very rarely have been on a beach. I've spent most of the time in archives or in the interior part of the islands um, looking at records and walking through historic sites and doing uh, recovery programs and cemeteries. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything because to me, it gives me so much a better sense of the people and the families and the culture of these communities. I definitely echo that sentiment from, from my own perspective as a historian too. Um, what are your plans for this research? Or do you, do you plan on putting uh, a full monograph together or or um, just, just sort of have it available for people? There's some cool things going on. I, I know on a personal level with my family story, uh, we're working on a documentary. We've been working with Barclays Bank, Jamaica, uh, Ghana. So we're very excited about that. But here in Rhode Island, the smallest state, uh, which we think is the most innovative state, uh, last summer working with Rhode Island Black Heritage Society and our leading historical organizations, um, our governor signed a bill passing into law an African heritage history curriculum for all K to 12 public schools in Rhode Island. It will be the most comprehensive history curriculum in the nation. And we're quite excited about this effort. We'll be announcing it next month for Black History Month. Uh, we'll be bringing in fellows and scholars to drive the education, professional development for the teachers. And what's most important is, is the history and the units of instruction will not only be the slavery and slave trade, It'll be the entire comprehensive history of the African heritage people. And, and again, the term that we're using, African heritage, we're not saying African-American. African heritage gives us the ability to reach out, interpret, and present the histories of anyone and everyone who could be part of that diaspora. That could be a New England Cape Verdean people who have an African heritage. Many Latino people have an African heritage. Biracial, multiracial people have an African heritage. Many of our indigenous people, particularly here in New England, have an African heritage. There are more African-born people living in Rhode Island than African-Americans. So we're excited to the fact that lead, led by our historical institutions and embraced by our governor and our political leadership, we'll be designing and building what we think will be the most comprehensive and the most exciting um, for all K-12 public school students, African heritage history curriculum. As a part of that, understanding the challenges of COVID and the pandemic and the lockdown, we are working with designers to create online portals so that students will have, by the end of this calendar year, access to portals. We'll give them direct access to not only curriculum, but to documents and, and heirlooms that we'll be digitizing and placing and making available to a larger audience. So 
again, we're all excited about this. I'm excited because again, um, I get to tell the whole story. Uh, but more importantly, I can't tell you kids of color and particularly African heritage kids, when you present this history and it gives them a sense of power and identity and culture and connectivity, I can't tell you how excited they are. Uh, I'll be very candid. They're tired about talking about George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, or John Brown as slave traders. They get it. That's mm -hmm. who they were. That's what they did. They want to talk about the stories of men, women, and families that looked like them, worshiped like them. And that's what we're going to be doing. And that's what excites me. And again, over the next year, we'll be unveiling all of this in the smallest state of Rhode Island, but we think the most innovative state. That's amazing. That, that's what it's all about, I think, in my opinion, is making that information accessible and then also, uh, you know, as you said, empowering the people whose history it is, it, to which it belongs. Um, you mentioned at the beginning that you are doing some lectures for Black History Month. Are any of those public for listeners who might want to attend? Yeah, I can send them to you. I, I do this on behalf of historic institutions. So I know I'm doing a number starting Monday with Martin Luther King for the Rhode Island Black Heritage Society and others. I, I'll email you some of the links to that. That sounds great. Yeah, they'll all be online, unfortunately, because of the um, social distancing issues. But that's okay, because uh, we have lots of artifacts and documents that we can digitize and make available that we may not have been able to make available in a public forum. Yeah, it, it gives more people access to who might not be able to leave home otherwise. Ab absolutely. Yeah, I, I've been uh, very impressed with the level of online presentations. I mean, we've had 30 to 300 people and they've worked pretty seamlessly. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It was an extremely informative uh, episode. Uh, and I hope that the people listening also learned a lot about Newport and its history from Keith. Uh, thank you. Uh, very happy. And if you're in Newport, please visit uh, God's Little Laker and visit the Newport Historical Society. And they run walking tours and programming. And I'm just very proud of the institutions we have in our community. Once the weather gets better, I'm definitely going to do that in Newport. That's what they tell me. Uh, but, you know, walking in the wintertime is kind of interesting also. With the leaves down, you get to see historic properties and sites and structures that you may not see sometimes in the summer side. That's a good point, too. Yeah, especially when you, know, you really get a sense of landscapes and, and things and its association with the land, with the downtown, with the harbor, but you might not get to see sometimes when there's a lot of foliage and lots of people and tourists walking around. So please reach out. We'd love to be able to support anyone that wants to come to our community. All right. Thank you so much. Thank awesome. you now. Take care.